Hello everyone and welcome to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This week's first segment is brought to you by senior editor Nick DeSena, freshly returned from the Himalayan mountains in India, where he rode the all-new Royal Enfield Himalayan ADV bike. The Himalayan has gone through a generational upgrade with a bigger, more powerful motor and the addition of Showa suspension just to start with. Royal Enfield is clearly upping its game and Nick gives us his thoughts on the new machine and where it fits into the market. Motos and Friends is brought to you by Arai Helmets. Yes, there is such a thing as the Arai difference and it reflects the company's incredible attention to detail. For instance, if your experience has been that helmets are hard to get on, then you need to try the Arai Contour X, designed with a wider bottom opening for easier on and off. It is the helmet you've been waiting for. Once on, you'll be amazed at the extreme comfort of the Contour X. That's a key benefit for long distance touring. Another example of the Arai difference, side air channels. The Corsair X utilizes internal ducting and that effectively increases the extraction of hot, moist air from the eyeport area, and that helps reduce shield fogging and increase your comfort. You need to get to your local Arai dealer and try the Contour X and the Corsair X. You won't be disappointed. Or if you want to learn more, visit AraiAmericas.com. In our second segment this week, I chat with Chris Fillmore from the Piera Mobility Group, the owners of KTM, Husqvarna, and Gas Gas brands. After retiring from his professional superbike racing career, Chris has now worked for PMG for around 10 years, including his recent stint as the manager of the Flat Track Racing Program. Chris and I talk about his race experience from motocross, supermoto, superbike, as well as his insights into riding a flat track motorcycle fast as well. Chris's laid-back demeanor belies his incredible ability to go fast on just about any motorcycle. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. It's a little bit confusing because the original Himalayan bears the same name. Uh, Royal Enfield doesn't use any sort of numerical monikers tied, tied to anything, but for the purpose of this conversation, we'll reference the original uh, Royal Enfield Himalayan as the 411 and the new Himalayan, the next generation of it, this would be the second generation overall, as the 452, and both of those numbers denote the displacement of each uh each generation's uh, single cylinder engine. So could be a little bit confusing for some, but uh, you know, try to try to follow along and we'll, we'll try to make it as easy as possible. But you know, that's how you're going to differentiate the two just because they do have the same name essentially. Okay. But it certainly, if we're talking about displacement, um, it is a still a single cylinder engine, but obviously 41 cc's bigger. And in that kind of size of engine, 41 cc's is actually makes quite a difference, I would imagine. What what was the motor like? Yeah, it, it makes a considerable difference. If we if we talk about the original Royal Enfield Himalayan, we kind of have to do a little bit of history on it, just because when it came out in 2016, 
I believe it was marketed as a 2016 model in the United States. It originally launched with a pretty impressive price tag. So that was $4,449. And even today, uh, you know, as a 2023 uh, Himalayan, it, it eventually, you know, increased pricing, et cetera, et cetera, as most bikes do over their, their 10 years. It was still a pretty paltry $5,449. And that's the 2016 through 2023. When talking about the 2024, we don't have pricing yet. Royal Enfield North America has chosen to play their cards close to the vest. They really haven't said anything in the way of pricing. And Royal Enfield is really known for producing high volume, extremely simplistic. Uh, single cylinder motorcycles and that's kind of their that's their bread and butter uh they sell more motorcycles in india than well the u.s market and overall i mean they push serious serious numbers that said you know the brand is really built upon a foundation of building things that are unpretentious uh quite easy to repair and use and um simplistic and those are the three key things that when you're looking at a very Indo-centric uh, motorcycle, and when I say Indo-centric, I mean something that is, you know, closely aimed at the, the Indian market specifically, those are things that are really going to help it do well in some of those emerging quote unquote markets when you're looking at it from a Western point of view. Um, that said, the... The bike in at its core, the original Himalayan, you know, 16 to 23 is insanely simple. It's a 411cc air-cooled two-valve single-cylinder engine. Uh, it produced horsepower numbers that were, were well, we'll just say it, they're kind of <laughs> kind of barely adequate. You know, it's 24 horsepower and 24 foot-pounds of torque when you round the numbers. And it's a simple machine a five-speed gearbox. It's uh, overall just a very, very old school and um, unsophisticated thumper engine. That doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, when you really take the the original Himalayan for the, the sum of its parts, none of them blow your hair back at all. You know, it's a very softly sprung motorcycle. The brakes are weak. This is the, the chassis has a lot of flex to it. But it still had this kind of uh, never say die attitude with that. It was very dogged in its pursuits off road, and it's small, you know. Despite the fact that it was, you know, on the heavier end of the spectrum, it is kind of you know seven eighths scale to your average, you know, motorcycle. So it is very indicative of a lightweight bike, and it's kind of interesting how all that simple simple tech and simple componentry really pleased a lot of American riders over the years because when the Himalayan came into the U.S. market, it kind of struck a chord. And I would say that it was probably the first, one of the first Royal Enfields that really was able to, you know, gain a, a sizable foothold within the U.S. market. Um, and a lot of adventure riders that may own multiple motorcycles, may own very advanced motorcycles in comparison, 
you know, your KTM 890 Adventure R owners, your GS owners, they would purchase something like this just because of its simplicity, its cool factor, the fact that it looked old school, kind of rode old school too. Um, Royal Enfield is like older Moto Guzzi in a way where they look the way they feel. And that's not a knock. It's just, you know, it's very self-effacing, which I, I appreciate. Um, so that kind of brings us into the 2024 model. You had a bike that was old school. It was very honest with its capabilities. That said, because of its size and maneuverability, you could do things that I honestly don't think I'd really enjoy doing on a, you know, leader class adventure bike a lot of the time and a super cheap price point. So it really just made you overlook a lot of the deficiencies in terms of hardware and go, well, this thing's four or five grand kind of don't care. And it's just going to do what it's going to do. Now, as we go into the 2024 model, Royal Enfield, you know, has really made an effort to, expand outside of uh, Indian and Asian markets. Uh, they're already a massive player in those markets and sell silly amounts of volume. And what the brand is trying to do at this point is expand into American and European markets once again. And when I say once again, it's because Royal Enfield was once a British company and now they're wholly an Indian company. And they've been an Indian company longer than they've been a British company at this point. So. Um, but its roots are still in the UK. Uh, they still have a design office in the UK. Uh, at any rate, moving on to the 2024 model, you'll see this massive step forward. And it's pretty incredible in the sense that they're not doing things in an iterative fashion that you would have seen from other manufacturers where you can look at a generation of motorcycle every handful of years and you can see those tiny baby steps forward in terms of technology what we have here is a massive leap and it's essentially because they've just skipped a bunch of uh, evolutionary steps and jumped into what i would characterize as a modern motorcycle you know to that end we do have a single cylinder engine again you know Sticking with the simplicity theme, because single cylinder engines tend to be not only easier to manufacture, but also easier to maintain in a lot of ways. You have the first ever water-cooled engine from Royal Enfield. It is dual overhead cam, four valves, 452 cc's, and produces 39 horsepower and 30 foot-pounds of torque. So, you know, according to the numbers, it's something like 65% more horsepower than before. And that's one of those figures that during press drunkens, we will get a lot of information like, oh, we're producing X amount more than the last generation. 65 is easily the largest number I've ever seen and probably yeah, will sure. ever see because really no one makes that jump unless they were to revive some old namesake from the 80s or something and be like, oh. 65% is not a million miles away from double the horsepower. That's a big jump. That is a big, big jump. Like Triumph, when they when they did the Trident a couple of years back, that's an old school uh, moniker that they used for a model way back when. If you were to compare the modern Trident's uh, performance numbers to the old school one, yeah, I bet you can make that claim, but there's like a 40-year gap between them. So it's kind of irrelevant. And anyway, what I'm trying to say is that this doesn't really happen. 
And this just reinforces the fact that what we're getting with the, the new Himalayan engine is that it is a truly modern engine. As nickel coated aluminum cylinder and a nickel coated aluminum cylinder forged piston. It has a much higher compression ratio. Still not, you know, kind of balls to the wall, KTM style um, uh, compression ratio. Things are lightened. Pretty much everything inside the the engine case is lightened. Um, there's really no point in citing every single component that is lightened. It's just, it say saves something like twenty pounds over the previous. Uh, uh, engine completely new generation motor without yeah, and now and now it sits within a stressed member uh frame instead of an old school kind of uh dual crate frame. um and so on you look at that and you go okay all of these things if i were to compare it to a japanese or european manufacturer these sort of uh terms like nixel coating blah 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 we would be uh, uh I, I think we take them for granted when we talk about those manufacturers, because they've done this for so long, whereas Royal Enfield has not. So then we kind of move down into the chassis. It's an all new chassis, as I mentioned, and that includes the suspension. We're now running uh, inverted fork, uh, much beefier. It's a 43 millimeter uh, show up unit, as well as the, the shock as a show unit, unit. non-adjustable uh, either end, say for preload on the shock. We're still running the 21 inch and 17 inch uh, tube wheels but there is an option for tubeless uh, cross-spoke wheels. And, you know, some of the other things that you're going to be noticing is that it's also using a TFT display. It runs ride-by-wire. Um, it has riding modes. This is not just a short kind of, uh, you know, very subtle departure from what, what Royal Enfield is known and has been known to do over the years. This is really jumping into the big leagues and saying on a, a very, very, I would say, grand scale that, hey, we want to play in, you know, with the the Japanese, the European manufacturers, you know, and it's kind of a, a joke, really, because this is the, the sentiment that you get from Royal Enfield staff. In reality, their, their sales figures are... <laughs> they trump a lot of uh, a lot of different manufacturers. So it's kind yeah. of an interesting thing, but then you have to kind of consider a price point, um, you know, profit margins on each unit. So, you know, selling, for example, 300,000 Honda Navis is a lot different than selling 30,000, you know, uh, BMW 1300 GSs. Um, there's a, a different, price point there's a different uh profit margin there's a different prestige factor you know so let's not get too off topic anyway if you're going to ride a himalayan the best place to do it according to royal enfield is to go to the himalayas because that's where this bike acquired its namesake of course and uh yeah you know there's some uh, positives and negatives with going to the himalayas first for a californian it's like 30 some odd hours of traveling um also you get to go to the himalayas which is pretty sweet um there's really no terrain like it at any rate you know it's it is it is an interesting thing because royal enfield as a brand is about 124 years old but what we're seeing is a brand that's really going through a renaissance 
not just with this bike, but when they launched the, the 650 parallel twin engines a number of years ago, that was another kind of notification to the industry that, Hey, we are doing something else. We are, we are advancing beyond what you might know us for. And, you know, we're, we're here to play. And I think the parallel twin has done really well for Royal Enfield. This is just another kind of notification. We'll say, uh, whether things come to fruition, I don't know. And also I don't have time to talk about that because I need to start talking about the motorcycle anyway. So <laughs> engine. yes, 39 horsepower, uh, at 8,000 RPM, 30 foot pounds of torque. Now this test is a little bit interesting because we, we are at elevation. I did say that we went to the Himalayan mountains. That's a pretty broad thing to say because it spans I think, five countries, six countries. Either way, they're very long, that mountain range. And uh, our days, we, we went to a place in uh, called Manali. That's uh, kind of a touristy spot, uh, you know, for hikers and uh, people that want to visit temples. And I assume uh, white people that really like crystals and stuff like that um, to find enlightenment. I'm not sure. But um, anyway, Manali, it, it, it's at like 6,700 feet. So we're at elevation and we climbed up to about, uh, I think, just shy of 11,000 feet or maybe 11,000 feet. So you guys always have to remember that at elevation, any internal combustion engine is going to be losing power because you're going into uh, uh, low density oxygen as you climb in elevation. The air gets thinner. Um, you know, engine isn't able to produce as much power. At any rate, um, really, you're at at the peak elevation. You're losing as much as thirty three percent horsepower, give or take. So, on a single cylinder engine, that's quite a bit. That said, we can compare it to the original because I have ridden that. It's been a little while. You know, it's still it. When I say four fifty single cylinder, I think people kind of get four fifty single cylinder motocross engine in their mind. That's not what we got here. You know, it's true to form Royal Enfield. It's very approachable, super soft, you know, throttle response. And some of that is going to be because of the fact that we're at elevation. And really it kind of picks up around, I would say, you know, 4,000 RPM-ish and then revs out to your, your red line. Um, and so you got about a, maybe, you know, 4,000 and change uh, window to play in. It's got kind of a, you know, broad, broad power band is not, not entirely generous, um, but it, that's within the realm for sure. And it's just a very easy, happy going engine, kind of like the original was, but with a lot more power, even at elevation. So that should really put a pin in it. If someone goes, oh, well, you're at elevation, it's probably making about the same as the old one. Well, just imagine what the old one would do in the same situation. So that's kind of that. Of course, we have a six gear on the Sherpa 450, which is what the new engine is called. It's kind of awesome that we went to the Himalayas and rode an engine called the Sherpa and it towed our stupid American bodies around, but that was nice. And um, at any rate, you know, the thing, the thing just kind of plods along. It's got some 
some sort of uh you know it revs up nicely and it's just a fun little engine to play around on it it never really overwhelms a rider in any capacity because it just doesn't have the horsepower to do it and it doesn't feel totally underpowered save for a, a couple of situations you know we were riding around on the lay manali highway which is just this sort of connecting road as you you finally you finally enter the himalayans and as you're you're exploring around you know you're at probably i don't know maybe eight nine ten thousand feet depending where you are on, on that road and you have sheer cliff on your left hand side or right hand side depending on the direction you're going and it's a nice canyon road but the thing is when you're at you know 65 70 ish miles an hour it's losing some some punch up top of course kind of loses some of that passing power again we're not at sea level so we really have to keep that in mind with this particular test and you know the thing is it just it's a very easy easy going engine to ride then when you do slow down you're in those tricky little trail situations because we did get to ride off-road and i say off-road in a kind of a tongue-in-cheek matter because when you're riding on indian roads it's not like riding in europe or the united states or or even you know south africa for example um you can just be faced with riding off-road at random you could be riding on a beautifully paved surface and then suddenly <laughs> you're just plowing through some some <laughs> rocky bits it's uh it just keeps you on their toes <laughs> right uh, yeah inter interesting infrastructure for sure granted we're in the remote of the remote um that is the most remote place that i've ever been to in my life and probably will stand as such unless i go to antarctica or something like that but yeah it it's it's an engine that that really starts to shine when you are in difficult situations so we started hitting some icy patches and off-road and you know things like that and what you don't want is too much power you don't want to be suddenly trying to wrangle something in low grip situations you always want to be in command of it so if you're even beyond a slightly beginner level rider this is something that you're going to be able to wrap your head around and feel very comfortable with in those situations that might be stressing you out otherwise and then that's before we start talking about its physical size because the the bike still is you know it's a little bit larger than the previous generation but it's no monster it's no you know it, it's no no leader class size adventure bike it's still a pretty small maneuverable little thing that you can be pretty happy with you know when you're you're in those I, I would say more stressful off-road um environments so yeah you know the engine in a nutshell the advancement shows the fact that it has you know multiple ride modes it has a performance and an eco mode peak power is the same between them it changes the throttle mapping and then you have abs on or off um but yeah it's it's just a solid little engine and an appreciable step up from the prior generation because as you know we mentioned before that thing was pretty rudimentary by comparison um it was slow revving whereas this thing spins up a lot faster it didn't have a lot of punch whereas even at elevation this thing can take the other one to the cleaners um what we'd really need to do at this point is get one in california or just at remotely closer to sea level to see what it can do 
and, you know, and I'm hoping that below that four 4,000 RPM range, there's a lot more punch and, you know, elevation can really, really change things it really uh, does. in terms of character. So yeah. that said, the engine on the engine front, pretty cool. And you're getting something that is far more advanced than the, the prior, the prior iteration. So that's where we are on the, uh, the engine front. Yeah, look at looking at the bike, it really does not have that sort of traditional Royal Enfield retro look. I mean, this looks like a modern ADV bike. Um, it's really a, an extremely good looking bike, actually. I really like the look of it. So so clearly they've they've gone to a whole different level with with everything. Um, so I guess moving moving along, what is what's the suspension like? I mean, it's, I see it's got upside down front forks on it and, and so on. Yeah, well, you know, on that note, it it is styled completely differently. What what I think I really do like about the original is in in just anecdotally, you know, in conversations with people, the original struck a chord with both riders and non-riders. It it had something that was very true. yes, very, very kind of authentic and vintage about it. Um whereas the the current generation has really moved away it's sort of a, yeah. a neo retro look and other brands have experimented with this triumph has honda has um a husqvarna has and while there are definitely some stylistic themes that carry over i would say that this current generation of the himalayan is looking a bit more forward and we can see that within the fuel tank shape which is a little less conventional than what I would compare to other motorcycles, just in general, kind of flares out at the top. Um, and some of that is hidden in the photos, at least by the, the crash bars that actually do come on this motorcycle stock. So everything that you see in the photos, that's how the bike comes. That's just the way it is. Um, you know, there are old school kind of styling cues. You have the, the circular headlight, you know, that's definitely indicative of, you know, older motorcycles, um, the fender flares, things like that, you know, they, they, they look a little bit old school, but if you, if you kind of check it out overall, it is a bit more modern. Um, and I'm of two minds about that because I really do like the look of the original, but there are numerous, numerous, uh, reasons why the thing is styled the way, the way it is. And really it's sort of a, a function follows form instead of a form follows function kind of ethos because they're really trying to reinforce um you know different aspects they're trying to slim down the the standover height for example uh keep the seat height nice and low uh for example the the seat is a two position adjustable seat which is really cool to see um super easy to adjust to you just have the two little pegs that you move into the position and plop them down we've seen that um that strategy used on a couple different motorcycles before. And it goes from 32.5 inches to 33.3 inches. The thing is, those numbers sound a little bit taller when you think about them. I rode with the bike predominantly in the taller seat height. My inseam length is 32 inches. So there's some squish in the suspension. But overall, it's a very narrow motorcycle. We have to remember that it is a single cylinder packaging. So the chassis and everything else can be quite narrow. Um, so sometimes those numbers can be a little misleading, and that's something that I, I would want to make clear. Um, yeah, it, it, it doesn't look like a tall motorcycle. 
just the pictures no, of you no. riding it, it, it you look um comfortable on it but you certainly look like you've got lots and lots of, of leg room to touch the ground yeah i mean you can really tell this when you when i'm sort of standing over the bike um you know interestingly if i were to be riding something like a aprilia toreg a yamaha t7 um a ktm 890 adventure or adventure r uh, ducati desert x any of the middleweight motorcycles for example you're going to have a lot more real estate on your inner thigh uh you know where you grip the tank you're going to have more chassis more tank to really grip everything and keep it together whereas this if you look at the photos it comes up to about my knee and then gripping the seat and tank is kind of done more with like the inside of your kind of the top of your calves and not quite the same way that you would on a, a full-size bike um and even some of the lightweight adventure bikes uh i'll remove the 390 ktm from this conversation because that is a more traditional uh standing motorcycle but something like the bmw 310 gs or any any of bikes of that ilk or they kind of stand a little funky but um yeah this sort of splits the difference between something like that and you know a, a true middleweight in size it's slightly bigger than a lot of the white lightweights and then a, a good bit smaller than the other bikes now i did kind of touch on suspension as we mentioned before it has a much beefier 43 millimeter uh inverted unit show fork non-adjustable and then you have a shock that has preload or spring preload adjustment only okay so on that note it still runs with compliant suspension but what you're getting in the chassis is significantly stiffer than before and it doesn't take it to the ends of the earth and make it much much more hardcore too hardcore for what this bike's audience is going to be which they hope to be extremely broad just like the older bike where you had a motorcycle that appealed to the beginner rider the intermediate and the advanced rider and they're all coming at it for different reasons so running with more compliant suspension is not a bad idea now compliance we often say that in reviews and we can what we're really trying to say is that it's soft and having soft suspension is not necessarily a bad thing as long as it's damped well and it's able to hold itself up in a lot of off-road reviews you're going to hear terms like hold up and that doesn't mean stopping you it just means that it actually resists initial impacts and holds the bike up nicely without becoming too firm or harsh or uh you know starts making the bike deflect because it's too stiff and really it just keeps the bike tracking through rough stuff um interestingly we we rode on a lot of different um types of terrain so you know paved asphalt obviously the random bits that i mentioned before of just random kind of broken asphalt and off-road stuff we rode some what i'd characterize as pretty much fire roads and then a couple little kind of there's a very short section of i guess two track sort of stuff and then random bump jumps and thing like things like that what's kind of interesting is that this bike sits at its wet weight sits at 432 pounds which is not light for a, a bike of this displacement uh, it's actually pretty heavy um if you need a reference point klr 650 is in that range so anyway it carries its weight well everything that they've done with the new chassis design is to optimize uh, center of gravity and also help bias 
uh, the weight forward just a head, just a just a tad. So the engine is actually canted forward, whereas before the thing was dead vertical. Um, you can see that in the photos where the cylinder is actually leaned forward. So it's actually pushing weight towards that front wheel. The bike really carries itself nicely. So despite the fact that it's 450 pounds, you wouldn't really know that unless you were trying to deadlift it or something like that. Even then, it's a smaller motorcycle. So if someone were to pick this thing up off the ground, well, I'd rather pick this thing up than every single leader class adventure bike that exists and has ever existed for that matter. That's not a grandiose statement to make the Himalayan look better. It's just true. Okay. Like those things are massive and much heavier. This thing is small. It's going to be a lot easier to deal with. Um, you know, on the suspension front, thing handles itself nicely. You know, like I said, it's compliant suspension. So as long as you don't grab a fistful of brakes and slam the front end onto the stops while you're, you're pushing it in the canyons, it's going to be fine. And if, as long as you kind of respect it, and I don't mean that with a caveat, just don't like ride like a moron off road. And that's the one that actually impressed me the most is we don't have any adjustment. We're going pretty good on some of these little fire roads, getting comfortable, having fun, you know, colleagues and I, and I can honestly say, I don't really think I bottomed out the fork maybe once or twice just slamming through something but the shock the shock definitely got it a couple times on some of those sharp edge baby head rocks and um you know when we were charging along and trying to bump jump it and things like that and you know you will find the shocks bump stop again it's 430 some odd pounds hitting something at 40 some odd miles an hour physics take over at that point and there you go so um but we need to remind ourselves that outside of those specific scenarios, the suspension works really well, which is kind of impressive, you know, because it is budget suspension. Like, let's just not mince words here. This it's cheap suspension, non-adjustable. Um, but again, they've gone to a name brand Showa unit, much higher quality than the prior units. Upside down fork, that's going to add stiffness. The, the frame itself is going to add stiffness. The fact that it's now using the engine as a, as a stress member is going to add stiffness. The swing arm is stiffer. Um, everything about this bike delivers a much more robust riding uh, impression compared to the old one. And still, it doesn't take it to an extreme or a seriousness that, say, a middleweight motorcycle might. Because um, obviously, you're dealing with much lower seat height much lower performance numbers, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Um, yeah, so it does does really well, you know, in terms of what its goal as a motorcycle is supposed to do. Now, if we were to take it to the California desert and start ripping around at its top speed and slamming through whoops, it's probably a different conversation that's going to happen. Yeah, but the, the bike, again, looking at the pictures, the bike seems as though it, it, it's a lot more favored towards the road. No, I, I, no, I, I want to, no, no, because no. remember Indian market, you know, they, they, they do things, they build things to work within their market and you may be faced with going off road at any given time, or you may be faced with a cow just hanging out in your lane as you cruise around a mountain <laughs> corner. It's a very specific example um, that happened at least five or six times. Um, you know, it's got a 21 inch front wheel, 17 inch rear, but 21 
you know, if you look at the middleweight class, there's only a handful of bikes that have 21s. And those are the ones that are the more hardcore off-road bikes. So this thing can do it, do it all in terms of on-road and off-road. You know, um, we need to remember what it's designed to do. So instead of sitting there and going, okay, well, maybe it's not going to charge through whoops or just blast through sand dunes and be as hardcore as an 890 or you know, a Scrambler 1200 XE or a Ducati Desert X or a Aprilia 790, or sorry, uh, Aprilia Touareg 660. Um, you know, that's fair. This bike is a low displacement, low seat height, smaller motorcycle that due to its size might fare better in some situations. You know, when, when, the, when the going gets fast, that's where it's probably going to fall off in comparison to a bigger, more substantial motorcycle. But when you're doing things at a more reasonable pace and respecting its boundaries, you're probably going to be fine. Okay. Um, you know, for no, the no, most that's part. impressive. That's impressive. Yeah. And remember, motorcycles are always about their boundaries too. You can't sit there and go, oh, well, you know, I, I did something that it, totally was not designed to do and it performed terribly like well okay. <laughs> yeah yeah um you know that said with the off-road stuff it does have an off-road abs mode that kills abs in the rear i think my two biggest complaints about this motorcycle would be with the brake performance overall okay. um, the original bike its brakes were soft spongy and not that great uh, that's being kind <laughs> but remember, you weren't really going fast anyway, so whatever. Right. We do have a, a much bigger 320-millimeter uh, front disc and some Vibri two-piston calipers. They still leave plenty to be desired on the braking front, um, especially on the road. So, you know, the kind of the first time I used them, came into a corner, me and a couple of colleagues all blew in there like we we're coming out of... <laughs> coming into turn one at Mugello for the first time, <laughs> almost staring at each other. And keep in mind, the brakes were totally not bed in at all. Like they were fresh. The rotors didn't even really have pad material down on them. Brakes got better as the day went on, but really in terms of feel and power, still not there. That said, a couple of current, or yeah, I guess prior generation owners were there and they're like, oh, these brakes are so much better. So apparently they've improved. That said, there's room for improvement yet so that that part of the scorecard <laughs> is getting a solid c on my 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 sheet um you know and then you have the abs the, the off-road abs which just kills abs in the rear for right. the most part it looks fine i would say there are certain moments where the front abs can get overwhelmed when you're in low grip situations however uh, we were writing some pre-pro or pre-production i should say models which does happen at press events quite often sure. and we were having some issues with changing the ride mode and because i couldn't change the ride mode i couldn't switch abs off so i ended up just pulling the abs fuse okay speaking honestly i would probably just do that anyway um for me because i wasn't too keen on the front abs performance and that was for me um, I was probably, this is not a bragger thing. I was probably just doing something that it didn't like probably breaking harder than its limits. Some other guys didn't have issues and, you know, they're 
just as skilled as me. And then some are far more skilled as me off-road. So this might be a me thing, whatever. I needed to yank the ABS fuse for a different reason. And it just happened to benefit me in terms of what I was doing anyway. So I did lose that protection clause in terms of ABS, but <laughs> I didn't care. Okay. Um, and you know what? A, a lot of uh, middleweight motorcycles and, and leader class motorcycles in the class. And I think I think that KTM 39, you can kill ABS completely. Anyway, um, you know, when you're in certain off-road situations, say you're doing a steep descent or something like that, you may not want front ABS. You may actually want to be able to lock the front end um, when you're sort of tic-tacking down something. Uh, you know, sometimes ABS can give you this freewheeling. I Sensation is not the right word. I'd say more experience because ABS is kicking in, so it's relieving pressure. And when you're doing a steep, rocky descent, something like that, that's probably not the greatest thing on the planet. Um, you know, and then kind of ergonomically, it looks like a small bike. And in the photos, I look kind of, you know, most bikes make a an average size human look a little smaller, especially the leader class ADP bikes. This thing, I, you know, I'm not dwarfing it and I'm only 5'10", but, you know, I say we're evenly matched in terms of what is taking up dominance in the photos. Yeah, um, it actually looks quite in proportion, I think. I, I like it. I think it looks yeah. good. You know, when you ride some of the bigger ADV bikes, it looks, you know, you look like a child riding them. And then, you know, it's like, okay, cool. But, uh, you know, the, the overall thing there with the ergonomics is that when you're sitting down five foot, 10 inches, it works. They do also have a low seat option. Um, standing over it, again, it works. I would, I would want some more real estate between the legs just to, just to help it uh, with grip when you're off-road. Um, but that's kind of a minor gripe. Uh, the main, I have two kind of, I don't want to issue them as critical complaints about their ergonomics, but they're there. The rubber uh, rubber inserts for the foot pegs, pretty much every motorcycle that goes off-road or even not, a lot of them try to compensate uh, for engine vibrations with rubber inserts. And it's a good idea, especially you know, on a street bike where it's probably not going to get wet very often. The problem is depending on the rubber compounds, they can become really slick. And also depending on the boots you have. So the rubber that's actually on your boot, these ones in particular, the moment they get the slightest hint of moisture, they become slicker than snot. So look, it's a single cylinder engine. Royal Enfield was real keen on like, Hey, we want to help, you know, mitigate vibrations. My thing is, it's a single cylinder engine. It's going to vibrate. I don't care which one it is. They all vibrate to some extent. You know, so when you're up at the upper, the upper RPM band, or upper RPM band, um, you know, it, you can get some vibrations. But look, whether we're talking about a balanced single cylinder like the uh, 690 uh, KTM engine that's, you know, in there, Enduro and, and supermoto bikes and used to be in the 690 Duke or, you know, other single cylinder engines on the market, they get vibey up top. It's just nature of the beast. I order a greasy cheeseburger because I want a greasy cheeseburger. I order a cheesy pizza because I want a cheesy pizza. Yeah. 
these are the nature of these things. Yeah. That mentally, I'm going into it fully prepared. Ditch <laughs> yeah. the stupid yeah. rubber inserts because there's no way to put it. They're not good. They don't do anything. And the moment you get them wet, you just immediately start slipping your boots and it's not good. The other thing is the the uh, the mirrors. They they need all the Loctite in India, which I said in the story is actually a subtle reference to all the tea in China. I don't think anyone <laughs> would ever understand that. That was just some weird mental association that I had. It could be all the tea in India. Yeah, they drink tea. I had chai when I was there, and um, the Indians get tea is phenomenal. Yeah. Also, when you get chai. If you let it sit there for a while, because I can't really drink like hot things or eat hot stuff, kind of gets this film on it. It's real gross. Don't do that. <laughs> okay. Well, getting back to the bike. Yes. Okay. So the mirrors are going to take huge amounts of humongous amounts of Loctite just to stop them vibrating and twirling around, presumably. Yeah. Well, I don't know about humongous, but just throw some Loctite on it and then wrench it down because a lot of us went off road and those things just started flapping around and you, you think like, Oh, it's kind of a minor complaint. The thing is they can actually hook on your arms and get in the way or go beyond that. And it's just one, it's distracting Two, It could actually hinder you three. They can hook up on you and lock the steering in a particular direction. Yeah, very annoying. Don't ask me how I know that because I've done it. So. Okay. All right. I also noticed that there's a, a sort of a crash bar sort of wrapped around the, the, the front of the gas tank. That's quite interesting. So they're clearly, clearly expecting this thing to go off road and presumably suffer some tumbling. Yeah. Again, you know, everything that you see in the photos is stock. It comes with a center stand. It comes with your, your little fly screen, which doesn't offer the, most amount of wind protection but at the end of the day you're not really going 85 90 miles an hour i think for taller riders it's going to be more of a factor for me i didn't really care too much um and yeah you know it comes with some crash protection to mainly protect the tank um the other stuff is pretty tucked in you know we saw a couple bikes tip over and in, in some sand or some icy bits like nothing really happened to them uh, the bike also has a lot more ground clearance than it did before. Uh, so that's nice. The skid plate itself, if you are going to ride off-road pretty hardcore or just be, you know, moderately serious about it, um, that skid plate would need to be beefed up, in my opinion. I would say you need to invest in something that's uh, probably thicker gauge aluminum or thin gauge steel, because as it stands... If I remember the spec sheet correctly, it's sort of a, a an aluminum runner with a plastic center. And you you can see Honda executing stuff like this sometimes. And there's definitely some protection there. You know, it's better having something there than not. But I, I don't think I'd want to slam directly into something. Whereas uh, if you were to run any of those big heavy-duty black dog engineering, you know, case guards. Granted, they weigh a lot, but they're beefy. You can just sort of right monster truck through stuff, and your engine case is going to be fine. Um, the other interesting thing is, is it appears to have uh, dual front fenders on it. It's got like a sort of a street bike front fender. Well, it's got the high fender, but then it also the problem with the high fender. 
you think about like old school off-road stuff, the high fender is there to mitigate, you know, choking the front wheel with mud and debris and stuff like that. But if you have a high fender and then nothing behind it, it just sprays all that debris directly into the radiator right. and the front of the engine. And it sort of really restricts its ability to cool. So that's not good. And if you look right on the front of the 21 inch wheel, it still has like a normal fender. So it still has a guard that prevents the thing getting splashed. Right. So it's an aesthetic choice, not a functional one. Because were you to put knobbies on this thing and then run through a bunch of mud, you'd still get mud choked up in that. That was kind of the point I was making is that it's got these sort of these dual front fenders. And clearly, if you're going to spend a lot of time on the street, then that the fender that's close to the tire is perfect. That's that's great. Yeah, as long as you're not doing any any like mud bogging sort of situations, which you know you may not may not do definitely not on the tires uh we had and the tires are an interesting thing they're from a um a brand called seat the seat grip tires grip with two p's so you know they're extra grippy visually these tires don't instill boatloads of confidence you're like okay this is clearly a 90 10 90 percent going to off or on-road bias weirdly and probably because of those chassis characteristics, it worked pretty well off-road. I mean, I would have wanted a knobbier tire, but at the same time, we did a lot of road miles, and they work pretty decently. Uh, I guess at the end of the day, this sort of bike, with its its horsepower, its chassis behavior, things like that, it really still captures that original Himalayan sort of fun spirit but it adds some performance to it and meaningful performance to where, you know, colleagues and I were just sort of hacking the thing into corners. And when we say hacking, we mean stomping on the rear brake and sliding around on the road into corners and, and having fun. And these are the sort of things and behaviors that you wouldn't really engage in unless you're pretty confident with the bike. And that really happens with a lot of lightweight bikes because you start understanding them and going, yeah, I can control this you're riding the bike instead of the bikes riding you. And as you go off road, a lot of those characteristics hold true. So yeah, in a nutshell, it's a, it's an interesting little bike in the sense that the lightweight ADV class is becoming more populated as is the middleweight class. Honestly, um, I would say the middleweight class is sort of the sweet spot. If you're looking for, you know, road, touring ability with off-road ability whereas the leader bike class they skew heavily towards touring unless we're talking you know ktm super adventure stuff anything with a 21-ish wheel then it's got some off-road chops but then you're dealing with 150 odd horsepower and and a lot of weight and that can work really well until it doesn't um just like anything for example but yeah, the Himalayan, for me, it captures that original sense where it it is still the fun, kind of happy-go-lucky, never-say-die attitude. Still has a lot of that injected into it, but has a lot of modern amenities without taking things too far. We don't know the price. That's really unfortunate for a review. Um, I'd really like Royal Enfield to announce that, and they say that the bike will be coming around in spring for their market. That's when they'll announce pricing. And, you know, pricing is really up in the air. As I mentioned before, other markets such as the UK and European markets have announced pricing. Pricing is also announced in India and some Asian markets. Um, 
the problem with that is that conversion rates don't always reflect the final price in any respective market. So you could be off, you, you could be right on the money, you could be off a grand. It's tough to say. Let's not speculate on the price, but Royal Enfield are, have a history of obviously producing inexpensive motorcycles, and I would expect this to be in a similar vein. Well, they have a history of it, but you know they're they're trying to to advance themselves and play on a different level. So, well, you know, speaking personally, hopefully that that rings true for the consumer. We'll just have to play wait and see at this point um, because we don't know if that's that's still going to sustain. Uh, that that's a big question mark uh, for for our market specifically. Sure. Uh, that said, you know there is a price increase if you were to compare the older bikes. Regardless, and and it's a more advanced motorcycle, so not seeing a price increase would be pretty unheard of. Um, but yeah, you know, overall, in the lightweight class of adventure bikes, this this thing is still still doing its thing. Really impressive. It handled itself well in its its ancestral homelands, we'll call it. And the trip overall is was was pretty insane. I know we didn't talk too much about the trip itself, but you know, you can read the story. I talk more about cats and dogs and cows and things so yeah it looks like a really impressive impressive bike that could really be very suitable for you know beginners or novices um you know who who are going to do the majority they're riding on the street but but want some you know want some adventure riding as well i think it's uh i think it's a really good looking nice entry into the market yeah people can definitely take that route but you know, just like the original Himalayan, I do think a lot of intermediate and advanced riders will kind of play with it and great. take it into places that that they may not have assumed it would have gone. Um, that said, based on my experiences in India, they will take anything off-road and take it to places <laughs> that the Western eyes and Western minds could only dream of. I, I saw economy cars doing things that Americans would require a Ford Raptor to do. <laughs> you know, never, never, you know, never discount ambition over no. <laughs> necessity and ambition when combined often create greatness, which uh, the Indian people really embrace wholeheartedly. Yeah. So it's terrific. Sounds like you were impressed. I, I enjoyed the bike again. God respects, you know, the bike's limits in certain, certain aspects, but as a whole, you know, if you're not just going to drone on the freeway and try to go at, at its top speed and understand what it's supposed to do, you're going to be pretty happy. And, you know, that can be said of a lot of bikes too. If you try to take a, sure. a heavyweight ADV bike, for example, and say, hey guys, all we're going to do is sandy single track. There are some ADV bikes, you know, heavyweight ADV bikes that are going to excel a lot better than others. There are some that are going to be terrible. And uh, we don't have time to discuss that right now, but you know, look, everything has its strengths and its weaknesses. And this thing really, really edges towards that, that low to medium speed range. And it's going to totally shine in that, that ballpark. So you can still tour on it. Uh, again, Asian and Indian customers, European customers, uh, they have a different landmass than us. They're dealing with different infrastructure. Um, the United States, we have a lot of freeways to get everywhere. And so that's why big displacement is kind of more popular here. Um, sure. That said, you know, 
different markets react differently to different things. So anyway, that's where we're at. Terrific. Thank you so much. I appreciate your insight as always. It sounds like a great trip and a really great bike. Motos and Friends is brought to you by Arai Helmets. Yes, there is such a thing as the Arai difference and it reflects the company's incredible attention to detail. For instance, if your experience has been that helmets are hard to get on, then you need to try the Arai Contour X, designed with a wider bottom opening for easier on and off. It is the helmet you've been waiting for. Once on, you'll be amazed at the extreme comfort of the Contour X. That's a key benefit for long distance touring. Another example of the Arai difference, side air channels. The Corsair X utilizes internal ducting, and that effectively increases the extraction of hot, moist air from the eyeport area, and that helps reduce shield fogging and increase your comfort. You need to get to your local Arai dealer and try the Contour X and the Corsair X. You won't be disappointed. Or if you want to learn more, visit AraiAmericas.com. In our second segment this week, I chat with Chris Fillmore from the Piera Mobility Group, the owners of KTM, Husqvarna and Gas Gas brands. After retiring from his professional superbike racing career, Chris has now worked for PMG for around 10 years, including his recent stint as the manager of the Flat Track Racing Programme. Chris and I talk about his race experience from motocross, supermoto, superbike, as well as his insights into riding a flat track motorcycle fast as well. Chris's laid-back demeanor belies his incredible ability to go fast on just about any motorcycle. To go back to the launch in Qatar that we had a few years ago of the Super Duke R, um, and you tricked out a bike with, you know, triple clamps, you know, obviously the the sort of the pipe and the chip and all those sort of things, but. I was shocked at what a massive difference it made to the bike. So who exactly develops all of those accessories? I mean, are you part of that or were you part of that? No, for that project specifically. So I've never, I can't claim any credit for being involved from the the concept of a motorcycle all the way through to production. Um, they brought me on for some final tests and just recently we tested some um new suspension components that will be coming on some street bikes and it was just the first test just to get like base feedback um but i've never seen a project all the way through um for qatar specifically when we did the uh 1290 super duke launch mick jeremy mcwilliams and myself basically showed up a little bit early and we were part of the braking crew just to make sure everything felt like we were the checks and balances, you know, make sure the bikes uh, felt how they should feel. Um, make sure there wasn't anything off on them. And then we kind of created a for that track, like a base setting because it was a track test. And then also a base setting for the WP Pro Component suspension as well. So really, it's just, it comes down to having fun and working with a good group of people. And I get to spin a lot of laps around world-class racetracks. And uh, that part of it is really neat, super neat. Right. So, so who actually develops all of these performance parts? 
Uh, the R and D team. Okay, that's yeah. Austria. So they're bad in bad in back in Mattinghofen, I suppose, are they? A large component is in Austria. Um, the U.S., we also have a team that's been growing. Um, we mostly, if we talk street product, take on our off-road adventure line. So, um, you know, I think we have... North America sees adventure bike riding a little bit different than, than Europe. And so we have some different demands. So we've kind of... And it's been a... It's been a it's been a growing process, but we basically s started with small projects and worked our way up and kind of had to build the trust of uh, r and d team in Austria. But you know, with Casey Lytle and Quinn Cody at the helm over here, uh, you, you have two people that are extremely knowledgeable and been involved in motorsports for a long time. so we've kind of steered the ship a little bit. And over here, I, I, when you go to like our KTM Adventure Rider Rally, uh, it's more, I looked at it as the first time I went, is more of a dual sport enduro adventure ride. You know, there's a lot of people that seek out the single track and the, and the technical rock climbs and the hill climbs and treat their adventure bike more towards a dirt oriented uh, moto experience. You know, they'll still commute on it, but um, they want it to be able to handle anything. So that's where the kind of the U.S. came in and not major changes, but small tweaks to get the end product where the we thought the customers would appreciate it most. That's got to be a big advantage in the market, I would think, because even your stock motorcycles are really, um, like you say, pretty focused on on very specific areas. So if you've got if you've got expertise in your team um, of of those specific areas, then then you're going to be able to make those products even more focused towards the end user. Yeah, you're right. And it, it's hard, you know, it's hard to put everybody in the same box. But I think, you know, if you look at KTM and Husqvarna and our adventure offerings, um, I think they do a really good job of covering, overlapping a little bit, but covering two different uh, spectrums. I mean, obviously, KTM is incredibly involved in racing, not least MotoGP on, you know, on that side of things. Um but you know all your supercross stuff uh, and and all your other off-road activities. Um, do you think there's a a really a, a big trickle down effect from what you're learning in racing to to what ends up on the product that, that the end user buys? I think racing drives our product for the most part. Um, you know, I think you know our brand promises ready to race, and we tried to deliver that. And I think the fact of like the authenticity of having Casey Lytle and Quinn and Coney, Cody lead our R&D team in North America. And then even, you know, with my background in superbike racing, we hire people who have lived it, experienced it, and now want to bring that authenticity uh, to a customer. So for sure, I think, I think there's a, it racing is a, massive driving force um in our brands yeah yeah i believe that well go, going back to your personal history 
you kind of started off in your really early racing years you started off more as a supermoto guy didn't you yeah i did i actually i actually started off as a motocross guy i grew up in michigan and uh just my dad and i kind of just going to the motocross tracks like baja acres um log road Redbud, and i was just an enthusiastic i don't know between 10 and 13 years old on an 85 um motocross kid and then uh my dad was a road racer and he was the one that built basically uh, a supermoto bike because he wanted to give it a try and then he was never able to ride it i went out on it and that's all it took i was hooked from there and, <laughs> uh, yeah I, I went down the supermoto path What was it sort of attracted you about Supermoto? Um, so for me, the only attraction was my dad. You know, he kind of, he had built this motorcycle and spent the winter preparing it. And we had one of the local shops, Matt Crown, MCR. He's a local suspension uh, tuning shop. And uh, he was right around the corner from our house. And he built us the first bike. And my dad had broken his ankles so he wasn't able to ride it and he was more interested to like how does it work so he took me to the track and then from there it was really uh for whatever reason and i can't i can't so much explain it to you but i, I had like a natural adaption to the pavement um so i could have been like an ignorance is bliss um but I trusted it and uh, yeah, just kind of a, a naturally adapted to it. And that was ended up being my kind of my strong point through all my racing history with Supermoto. The dirt side, even though that's where I got my start with motorcycles, uh, that was actually, that was actually always uh, my weak point. But I, again, we were racing Jeremy McGrath and Jeff Ward and Doug Henry and Travis Pastrana and uh uh, on the dirt, I don't, I, I, I don't hold a, a candle to them. <laughs> yeah, I've always heard from from dirt bike guys that as soon as they hit the pavement, they're just shocked at the level of grip, and so that must have been sort of the big eye opener. But I've, I've never ridden a supermoto bike. I would imagine that as you transition from the dirt onto the pavement part of the course, it's got to take you've got to come up with a whole different skill set haven't you i mean it's a totally different riding technique it is and i think some of the guys that came strictly from road racing um that didn't have a dirt background maybe struggle with that portion of it a little bit um i know a few of the guys that had more of like a road race style where they hung off the bike and dragged the knee um when you mix the dirt and the pavement it, it does get a little bit more challenging and um, that's why i think to this day, uh, I think the guys in Europe that who have kind of, you know, continued on the path of um, supermoto, they're still riding with the foot out. And it's kind of, you know, it's interesting to me because their style has changed over the years. That's almost like a hybrid. They kind of lean off the motorcycle with their upper body, but also they never drag their knee. They never lean off the motorcycle or their head is underneath the handlebars, but they are leaning in more like a road race bike. And it's, uh, it's, uh, 
I guess that's just the progression of, of the sport. But you said you've never tried a supermoto bike. I've never tried a supermoto bike, no. I've, I've never really ridden off-road. I grew up in England, so England doesn't have the, the sort of the open spaces that, that Americans do. Every American kid, especially of my generation, just they would just go out into the desert with their dads and they'd spend their whole lives just growing up on, on dirt bikes. But in England, we didn't get that. So I've only ever really ridden on the street and on track. Um, it's, you know, I've always felt, certainly since I've lived in America, I felt like I really missed out with that. Um, I'd love to have, have grown up in the desert like that. It's So growing up in Michigan, I didn't have that experience either. Um, we had some trail oh, riding really? in the woods, but yeah, the desert is its its own animal. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been out in California for 10 years, and I think one of the first things I did was get a 500 EXC so I could have that experience going out to Anza Borrego, seeing the sand dunes, like more travel, enduro, going, doing trips down to Baja, et cetera. And it, it, it's, it's special. It's definitely unique. A lot of, lot of open territory. I bet. I bet. Have you ever done any desert racing itself? I mean, have you done any Bajas or anything like that? Nope. Uh, the only thing that I've done off-road racing wise is uh, I did a couple national Enduros. There was a year that I uh, became buddies with Cole Kirkpatrick and Russell Bobbitt. Um, they're ex-professional off-road racers and uh, they now have kind of a dual sport uh, adventure clinic and tours called Gnarly Routes. But they got me into it and Cole really like helped me facilitate my first ever national enduro race out in Texas. And it was at this ranch where it was like a wild game ranch, but the animals were from Africa. So the as you're racing down <laughs> on back dirt trail, uh, you could see zebras running alongside of you. And it was it was a cool experience. I, I had a I had a good time. So having started off in Supermoto, at some point you then decided, I'm really liking the street sections of this, so I'm going to progress to road race tracks rather than dirt bike tracks. Yeah. So I got my start in Supermoto in 2003, and then I eventually transitioned full-time to road racing in 2009. And you know, the, the desire to go road racing was probably after the a year or two of Supermoto. Um, you know, I never had aspirations to be a professional racer. Uh, it was always a hobby for me growing up. And then at a certain point, I realized that this might be a path that I could go on. And after a couple of years of Supermoto, you looked at road racing and road racing was like, the pinnacle North American road racing at the time, you know, the, the mid early 2000s, I wanted to make a living. Um, and supermoto got me by, but I, it wasn't, it wasn't the same as what the guys were getting paid in AMA Superbikes. So I was young enough and I wanted to make that transition. And I, you know, I was kind of under the impression that, I was riding for Honda at the time and then KTM that somebody would pick me up and kind of put me in my spot and give me the opportunities. And 
Uh, I waited a few years to try to line that up and nothing happened. So in 2009, I just decided to buy my own bikes and run my own program and, and give it a shot. And, you know, as a privateer in hopes of getting to the right place at the top. Yeah, unfortunately, I think your timing was probably off. I mean, by then the recession was starting to bite. And it's a real, it's a real tragedy for sort of guys of a certain generation, guys like yourself and, you know, Frankie Garcia. It was, you missed the, the really the golden years up to about 2007, yep. just when everybody, everything was starting to fall apart. You're standing there going, hey, we're the new generation and we're ready to go race. And suddenly those, those seats aren't around anymore. Yep. You nailed it. I got in and it was pretty much the start of the downward yeah. recession of everything. And uh, it was sad because as I was progressing one less team, two less teams, three less teams. And so I kind of just had to hang on. And, you know, at a certain point it was 2000, uh, 2011. I was ready to just kind of wash my hands of it and walk away and like the pursue of it. And uh, Richie Morris reached out to me and offered me an XR 1200 ride. And uh, I wasn't too interested, but then uh, I kind of said, Oh, what the hell? And it ended up being like the saving grace for me being able to, continue as a professional racer. I ended up going on and winning that championship. And in the same year, KTM came to me and said, Hey, we have this new bike, uh, 1190 RC eight. And we want to, we basically want to shake it down. And we think you're our, our guy to give it a crack. We want to do three races and are you willing to do it? So I had to negotiate with Richie a little bit and let him know that, uh, you know, it's not going to disrupt what we have going in the XR 1200 championship. And that was, uh, that was the start of my superbike career. Oh, that's awesome. And that was on, wasn't that on the HMC bike or was that later? No. Yeah, that was HMC. It was HMC from start to end in North America. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was one race, I think it was at Laguna Seca that you did really well. You, I don't think you won, but you really threatened this was in the sort of uh you were threatening the top guys and you came damn close i came so close it's so far uh i was <laughs> yeah. on my maiden i was on my way to my maiden vo voyage for a podium um with the team with the bike and super bike and i ran out of gas in the second to last corner that was it that was it yeah, so, yeah uh oh. basically i came down out of rainy and as I'm coming down out of rainy, I'm like, I just felt a little, a little hesitation. And then you're going downhill. So you carry momentum. And as I come out of the second to last corner, I went to accelerate and I was like, I'm running out of gas. <laughs> like, I know what's happening right now. So I coasted as far as I could. Uh, Larry Pegram, who, who I battled the entire race with, uh, he ended up just almost hitting me because he didn't know what was happening. No, of course not, yeah. And then luckily I was able to coast onto the front straightaway and I ran it across the finish line. Do I think I finished seventh overall or something? So it wasn't terrible, but it could have been so much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. It was, uh, yeah. So 
so obviously there came a point where you were sort of look the money just isn't in racing i'm gonna have to get myself a job and and so how did you how did you come to join ktm because you've pretty much worked there ever since haven't you i have yeah i've, I've, <laughs> I've been here for quite a while if you include the racing you know um i kind of ended my supermoto career career with ktm went away for a little bit to establish myself as a road racer and you know uh then got picked back up by them and you know i think i, I owe it a lot to um well, John Hines, who's our president now, he was my team manager, more or less. Mitch Hansen owned the team, um, but John Hines was, he was responsible for the project from a KTM perspective. And I got to know John just, you know, through racing for him. And uh, when they discontinued the RCA, he kind of came to me and said, hey, we would love you to continue to be a part of our family. And I kind of looked and, you know, it was very grateful for that. Um, but I wanted to continue to go racing. <laughs> and uh, I actually did go down that path. Um, and I had a contract with Ray Hall BMW in 2016, but it ended up folding. Oh, okay. Before it even got going, I think the contract was about finalized for maybe a month. And... Then they came back and said, hey, this is not going to go forward. So uh, luckily, I left on good terms with John. I called him much sooner than I ever expected to, to come back, <laughs> uh, to come back home to KTM. But, uh, you know, I came back in and I've had a bit of a, yeah, really a, an education coming over here. Yeah. And then you've you've been involved in the flat track racing programs, haven't you, recently? Okay. I did, yeah. So I had like I had a slow start to my um, corporate career, I guess you could call it. Um, at first, they brought me on as an ambassador and to oversee the RC Cup program. Um, so that was kind of my intro. And then I did a small stint with Street Media Relations, where we met in Qatar, um, and that lasted probably eight months and then John Hines came came to me and said we want to go factory flat track racing and we think you're the guy to manage the team oh good and it, once again I said <laughs> I don't know anything about flat track racing but I'd, I'd like to be the racer if I could be and he goes well kind of looks at me it stares for a minute and he kind of goes well you can do that but you'll have to be you'll have to try out for the team but offering you a team management position is something that I can do today. So I thought about it for a day or two and then got back to him and accepted the position. Good. And and how did you guys do with that? I mean, how did the team do? Because you're not you're not doing that anymore in 2024, are you? Uh, we are not. Um, so I picked it up uh, our first start. We kind of got our feet wet a little bit with... Uh, Dan Bromley and Shana Texter in 2018. And that was kind of like my, I would call it my introductory year to um, to flat track. Just came to a couple of rent events. And then 2019 was when it more or less came fully in-house. It was a learning curve for sure, getting involved with it. 
from a KTM side, from my side, a little bit of everything. But, uh, you know, all in all, we were able to, we were, the factory team was just the singles to clarify. So we raced the 450 SXF. And um, at the end of this year, we were able to wrap up two national championships. And as a team over the period that we're involved, we got 27 wins and 54 podiums um, since 2019, since we got involved. And so it was, it was, it was definitely a successful endeavor and a very unique sport, uh, a lot of like steeped in tradition. And um, so it was uh, for, for me personally, definitely a learning curve, but um, it really unbelievable opportunity to be able to work within it and work with the riders and the teams and get to know the community and the sport in general. Cause uh, even though I'm from Michigan and a lot of past champions come from there, uh, I never had anything to do with flat track. So, you know, for, kind of from day one, it was, uh, I had, a, I had to learn my way through it. Yeah. Did you get to ride any of the bikes or did you actually get to compete in any of the races or I never got to compete. Um, I did get to ride a little bit and started riding a little bit more and even doing a little bit of just kind of like the shakedown testing. So I had a better understanding of what the rider was saying. Um, like their terminology is quite a bit different than anything I've used in supermoto and as well as road racing. So they speak a different language and it kind of helps to understand uh, for, on the basis. And I think that's kind of in the past two years, as I started riding more, it helped me have a better understanding of what the rider was looking for. Um, and so I never got to compete. I wouldn't mind doing a TT, but doing an oval without a front brake and 18 <laughs> riders on a grid. Um, I would say I don't, I like riding it. But racing it is a whole nother story. Those guys are incredibly confident and uh, precise. And I don't think I, I don't think I'm not going to raise my hand to jump in, in, in an oval race. That's for sure. <laughs> I'll bet your supermoto experience stood you in good stead getting used to a flat tracker, though. I mean, just the just the the concept of sort of drifting a bike sideways to and especially to help slow it down, um, and then get the drive out of the corner. That must have been quite a revelation to you, I should think, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think uh, I think the road racing, the supermoto, everything kind of came into because it's it's a basic sport in the sense that it's not technical in a sense that you only have two corners. It's an oval. <laughs> but when you simplify something, it becomes more difficult to have an advantage. So right. Right. Um, when you kind of get down deep in, into it, it, there's actually a lot of nuanced things that you, you wouldn't think uh, that make a big difference. And What sort of nuances? Well, for, for, for instance, just like a, a, the basic one, you know, road racing, supermoto, you do everything to remove unsprung mass you make the, the wheels as light as possible right flat track we put on a rear wheel that's 43 pounds whoa and it <laughs> has 
a characteristic that I would never think would work, but consistently does. And it, it, it also does not work in certain scenarios, but in some it's, uh, it works better. So I, why do you need such a heavy, heavy rear wheel? Um, so, so it, it helps, helps the bike, the, helps the bike turn. I wouldn't say it helps the bike turn, but it helps with the inertia. So it keeps the forward momentum going because unlike road racing or supermoto where you're always coming to quick stops, flat tracks, continuous momentum of an oval, you're carrying momentum. So you're not, you do have to slow down for the corner, um, but it's not as important to where like having a light motorcycle would really play its advantage. Um, so th the inertia seems to work on two points. One with controlling the wheel spin. And then it also creates a consistency. Um, so once you get that rear wheel spinning, it wants to stay spinning, which I'm sure has another type of gyro effect. But then if a track is rough as well, it it actually keeps the bike planted. Right. Which equals traction. Correct. And traction is all about getting drive out of the corner because the only way that you you can't outbreak somebody into a corner because none of you have any brakes. So presumably the only way you can really overtake is either by diving underneath somebody on the entrance or by getting a better drive than them out of that corner and then out right. driving them onto the straight yep correct um that's going to be really tough that must be a serious nuance there i should think whoever can get back to the throttle soonest you know that's that's a big one and then being able to actually get the wheels to hook up right right and a lot of that is to do with line isn't it because if you I think didn't I think doesn't didn't Kenny Roberts like going around on the berm on the outside and then sort of and driving down and, and that, yeah that kind of thing. and the, and yeah. when the track is built properly or prepped correctly, uh, it it's a incredibly incredibly like fascinating to watch these guys race because the high low they're moving around always looking for a different line trying not to get roosted, um, and they're really searching for. They're searching for the traction, basically. Wow, yeah, it's it's uh that must have been very cool. What brand were you racing? KTM or Husqvarna? Or? We were the Red Bull KTM team. Okay. So, so were the bikes pretty much ready out of the box, or was there a lot of changes that needed to be done? You know, surprisingly enough, there's not that many changes. There's uh the basis of it, remove the front brake. We would lower the suspension and you the height of the suspension is completely at it's not limited by the rule package but you do have to put in 19 inch wheels front and rear and then they have a spec dunlop tire okay um other than that you know getting the chassis the geometry the feel for the rider set up like like any sport um you know we're modifying it a good bit from what it comes standard um as a motocross bike and then really just working with the power delivery you know it's a uh, okay it's actually a very demanding sport from a technical side because it's simple 
So there's not a lot of places to make advantages. And then you really have four different style racetracks. You have a short track, you have the half miles, you have a mile and you have a TT. Okay. So, you know, the, the same bike that you use on a short track is not going to be the bike that you want to use for the mile. So you no, really have to kind of, you have to be on your toes um, and you need a lot of specs. So it's a, it's a pretty demanding, it's a, it, in the basic form, it's not, but to compete at the top level, it's, it's quite a demanding sport. Oh, I bet. I bet. Same with anything. It's going to be demanding at the top level. Yeah. So in terms of most of it must come down to gearing, surely. I mean, I, I can't believe these guys are sort of stirring the gearbox. Presumably you just, you go up to top gear as quickly as you can. And then, and then you just modulate your speed through the, through the gearing and you just set your final drive ratio so that you can use the same gear all the way around. Most yeah. of the track. So the, um, that's just a guess, by the way. You're you're pretty spot on. Um, and when I came into it, like I think all riders are a little bit different. Um, but when I got started with it, most people just use one gear. And then yes, correct. Set set your uh, final drive. So okay. if you're a half mile, you're either going to be in third or fourth gear, uh, and maybe a fourteen forty six would be like a common half mile gearing for a four fifty. And then. Uh, as riders developed, um, now people shift a bit, but it's just third, fourth gear or fourth, fifth gear, depending on the track. Right. And it helps. It's hard to create a bike that works where they want it to work from. You know, they, they want a very specific power band and it's hard if they don't shift. So as they really developed as riders, um, they started shifting more at, at racetracks that historically they never shifted before. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Is there, is there such a thing as too much horsepower? Um, I think so. <laughs> you know, you're, you're just, just, just going to spin the hell out of the rear wheel. If you ask the rider, they always want more. <laughs> um, so really the important thing is like, if you think about a motocross, track just with the stop and go the power band you use anything from uh probably three to four thousand rpm all the way to redline but redline is not really used to deliver the power but flat track is real specific they want to be in a window of eight thousand rpm to redline eleven thousand five hundred and they want so literally just a spread of about 3000 RPM and that's all and they, they want the torque to be at 8,000 and then they want it to continue pulling all the way to red line. So it, it's a, it's a spe specific request for a specific sport. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Do you, so now that, uh, now that you're back on more street type of stuff, do you think that your flat track experience is going to help you with, seeing how um more of the road racing you know stuff is going um i'm excited to get back into road racing you know like running the flat track program was a hundred percent my it took a hundred percent energy to be able to make it happen and be successful um, so in the new position i think it gives me a little bit more flexibility 
um, within the company to maybe look at some different events and um, really get to know comp transition back. You know, my my role is street media relations manager, street adventure technically. Um, so now I'm yeah looking to see what people are riding, where, uh, how our company can you know better serve the customer and. You know, if there's a couple one-off races that I can throw my name in the hat for, that that wouldn't be so bad either. <laughs> yeah, I th I think if there's again, I'm not really a, an off-road guy, so so my focus and interest is really especially MotoGP. Heck, my license plate on my truck is MotoGP Lover, so I think that probably tells you all you need to know. <laughs> but but I mean, I think. KTM's progress in MotoGP has been so freaking impressive. I mean, especially at the start of 2023. Um, I mean, it seemed like, you know, they were sort of floundering a bit in testing at the beginning of the year. And then, boom, straight out of the gate, they got it figured out. And just their level of breathtaking level of innovation that they just bring almost meeting by meeting just round by round i know let's bring out a carbon fiber frame you know and boom it just works straight out of the box and danny pedroza you know does amazingly at hereth so the point is is that with that level of innovation coming out are you really sort of seeing this stuff um coming out on the on the on the street bikes and the, the stuff that's hitting the public are you, are you seeing any of this stuff always like we try to drive through racing and we try to learn through racing what could be used for the street um you know like they have ktm they've done a phenomenal job to get to where they're at you know just from my experience going from racer to team manager for plot track and understanding on a small program what it takes to build it up and to grow it and then just to look what they've been able to do over a couple of years, the infrastructure, the personnel, the technology, like it's, it's incredible. They, uh, they have good people over there and they're dedicated. And I think that, you know, when they put their heads to something like they, they will succeed, they will get to the, where they want to be with it. You know, they've, they've proven that in every sport where they've given it a hundred percent commitment they always seem to be able to, you know, get themselves to the top. And uh, from a connection from racing to production, uh, I'm not exactly sure what the, the time frame is, but I know there's always a desire. You know, if you look at our RC8C, which is an idea to bridge the gap between MotoGP, bring something that is strictly track focused, that we can provide to the customer that's a it's a it's a step towards our MotoGP programs you know it's it's inspired by our MotoGP road race programs I should say sure this is the track only bike that is sold for you know it's fairly expensive but it is uh it's just sort of a, a publicly available race bike correct yes it's um it's track only it utilizes uh a 890 Duke engine with some upgrades for a little bit more over rev, a little uh, characteristic to get everything moving a little bit quicker. Um, 
different electronic setting. The chassis is a complete customized race specific chassis geometry. Um, and then when you see one in person, you realize that it is a, a race bike that you can buy. Everything's done on it. It's ready to go to the racetrack. It's com it comes with slick tires and stands and <laughs> tire warmers as well. And so it's a, uh, it's turnkey racetrack fun. Are you involved in any of the other other brands now that uh, obviously there's uh, Husqvarna and Gas Gas and now even uh, MV Augusta? I am. So so I will be working with all of our brands, uh, KTM, Husqvarna, Gas Gas, and now MV Augusta. Um, you, you're you're calling me for this meeting on week two of my new my new role. <laughs> <laughs> Don't quiz me too much on any of the products, but uh, hopefully uh, over time I will get to learn it and uh, have some intimate relationships with all of the product and uh, I'll be able to come back to you shortly. <laughs> right, 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 for sure. Do you see a real differentiation between the different brands? I think it's easy to see where the, where the differences are with MV Augusta, but... Do you see real differentiation between Husqvarna, Gas Gas, and, and of course, KTM? There's definitely a difference when it comes to styling, who we're trying to market to. All the technology is a shared technology, um, but it's it's catered to a different customer. Um, you know, the, the end user should have feel a different experience when it, he jumps on a Gas Gas or a Husqvarna or a KTM. Okay. And then uh, in terms of other things, I mean, obviously KTM is also owns WP Suspension. Correct. And that's a pretty brave move. I mean, to to really have their own suspension system as well. And there seems to be a lot of innovation there as well, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, think back to MotoGP, you have the KTM. KTM and gas test gas teams are the only teams that are on WP suspension. You look right. at every other MotoGP team, they're on Olin's all sharing the information from Olin's working as one group. It's four riders against, I don't know what, 20. Right. right so right. it's incredibly ambitious, but obviously they, you know, believe in their people um, and their technology. And so far, I think they're doing a, a an incredible job. And well, they really are. I mean, the results are showing are showing it. They're just the level of knowledge base that they must have now that again trickles down to down to the actual production WP suspension that people find on the bikes they buy. And that All completely does. Ra ra racing R and D work together on the suspension quite a bit. Yeah, that's terrific. So is there anything, are there any um, new things coming out in 2024 that you're at liberty to talk about, or is it all super hush hush? Um, well, it's our, everything that I'm at liberty to talk about at the moment is uh, already, <laughs> you guys have probably covered it, but uh, okay. for my new role, the first uh, media launch that I'll go to that is incredibly exciting is our 30 years of Duke. So the, the Dukes have been around for 30 years. We're uh, inviting the journalists to Spain. Uh, and at that launch, we'll get to ride the three the all-new 390, 990, and 1390 Dukes. So from yeah. my side, that's uh, so far uh, something that I'm really looking forward to because 
I've had a lot of, you know, intimate experiences with our Dukes. You know, when I stopped racing Superbike, came to KTM, uh, yep. got to race it at Pikes Peak for uh, three years in all three classes. And um, now I consider myself more of a naked bike specialist than I am a sport bike specialist anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. Pikes Peak must have been eye opening, I should think. Yeah, the whole time. Exactly. Wide eyed opening. All right, Chris. Hey, well, thanks a lot. I appreciate you coming on and yeah, absolutely. Telling us all about all about what's going on. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. Always good to talk to you, Arthur. And uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, you said you've never ridden supermoto. I'm I'm in the process of uh, building a new supermoto bike, so maybe we can uh, <laughs> drive to the track here sometime soon. Okay, sounds great. Sounds awesome. Okay. Hey, thanks a lot. Yep, ciao. Thanks.